0: down upon me, as they used to look down upon Danty, and mutely asking me to adopt them into my family, which I do with pleasure, for my remotest ancestors are but spring chickens compared with these robed and stately antiques, and it will be a great and satisfying lift for me. That six hundred years will. Mark Twain. Chapter 1 Woodenhead Wins His Name. Tell the truth or trump, but get the trick. In 1830, it was a snug collection of modest one and two story frame dwellings whose whitewashed exteriors were almost concealed from sight by climbing tangles, rose vines, honeysuckles, and morning glories. Each of these pretty homes had a garden in front, fenced with white palings, and opulently stocked with hollyhocks, marigolds, touch me nots, prince feathers, and other old-fashioned flowers, while on the windowsills of the houses stood wooden boxes containing moss rose plants and terracotta pots in which grew a brand of geranium whose spread of intensely red blossoms accented the prevailing pink tint of the rose-clad house-front like an explosion of flame. When there was room on the ledge outside of the pots and boxes for a cat, the cat was there, in sunny weather, stretched at full length, asleep and blissful, with her furry belly to the sun and a paw curved over her nose. Then that house was complete, and its contentment and peace were made manifest to the world by this symbol, whose testimony is infallible. A home without a cat and a well-fed, well-petted, and properly revered cat may be a perfect home, perhaps, but how can it prove title? All along the streets on both sides at the outer edge of the brick sidewalks stood locust trees with trunks protected by wooden boxing, and these furnished shade for summer and a sweet fragrancer in spring when the clusters of buds came forth. The main street, one block back from the river and running parallel with it, was the sole business street. It was six blocks long, and in each block two or three brick stores three stories high, Towered above, interjected bunches of little frame shops, swinging signs creaked in the wind the street's whole length. Candy stripe pole, which indicated nobility, proud and ancient, along the palace bordered canals of Venice, indicated merely the humble barber shop along the main street of Dawson's Landing. On a chief corner stood a lofty, unpainted pole wreathed from top to bottom with tin pots and pans and cups, the chief tinmonger's noisy notice to the world when the wind blew that his shop was on hand for business at that corner. The hamlet's front was washed by the clear waters of the great river. Its body stretched itself rearward up a gentle incline. Its most rearward border fringed itself out and scattered its houses about its baseline of the hills. The hills rose high, enclosing the town in a half-moon curve, clothed with force from foot to summit. Steamboats passed up and down every hour or so, those belonging to the little Cairo line and the little Memphis line was always stopped. The big Orleans liners stopped for hails only or to land passengers or freight and This was the case also with a great flotilla of transients. These latter came out of a dozen rivers, the Illinois, the Missouri, the Upper Mississippi, the Ohio, and the Mongahela, the Tennessee, the Red River, and the White River, and so on, and were bound every withering stock with every imaginable comfort or necessity which the Mississippi's communities could want, from the frosty falls of St. Anthony down through nine climates to toward New Orleans. Dawson's Landing was a slaveholding town with a rich slave-worked grain and pork country back of it. The town was sleepy and comfortable and contented. It was 50 years old and was growing slowly. Very slowly, in fact, but still it was growing. The chief citizen was York Lister Driscoll. About 40 years old, judge of county court, he was very proud of his old Virginia ancestry, and in his hospitalities and his rather formal and stately manners, he kept up his traditions. He was fine and just and generous. To be a gentleman, a gentleman without stain or blemish, was his only religion, and to it he was always faithful. He was respected, esteemed, and beloved by all of the community. He was well off, and was gradually adding to his store. He and his wife were very nearly happy, but not quite, for they had no children. The longing for the treasure of a child had grown stronger and stronger as the years slipped away, but the blessing never came and was never to come. With this pair lived the judge's widowed sister, Mrs. Rachel Pratt, and she also was childless. Childless and sorrowful for that reason and not to be comforted. The women were good and commonplace people and did their duty and had their reward in clear consciences and the community's approbation. They were Presbyterians. The judge was a free thinker. Pembroke Howard, "'lawyer and bachelor, almost forty, "'was another old Virginian grandee "'with proved descent from the first families. "'He was a fine majestic creature, "'a gentleman according to the nicest requirements "'of the Virginia rule, "'a devoted Presbyterian, an authority on the code, "'and a man always courteously ready "'to stand up before you in the field "'if any act or would of his "'had seemed doubtful or suspicious to you.' And explain it with any weapon you might prefer with bra dolls to artillery. He was very popular with the people, and was the judge's dearest friend. Then there was Colonel Cecil Burla Essex, another FFE of formidable caliber. However, with him we have no concern. Percy Northumberland Driscoll, brother to the judge and younger than he by five years, was a married man and had had children around his hearthstone, but they were attacked in detail by measles, croup, and scarlet fever, and this had given the doctor a chance with his effective antediluvian methods, so the cradles were empty. He was a prosperous man with a good head for speculations, and his fortune was growing. On the 1st of February, 1830, two boy babes were born in his house, one to him and one to one of his slave girls, Roxanna by name. Roxanna was 20 years old. She was up and around the same day with her hands full, for she was tending both babes. Mrs. Percy Driscoll died within the week. Roxy remained in charge of the children. She had her own way for Mr. Driscoll soon absorbed himself in his speculations and left it to her own devices. In that same month of February, Dawson's Landing gained a new citizen. This was Mr. David Wilson, a young fellow of Scott parentage. He had wandered to this remote region from his birthplace in the interior of the state of New York to seek his fortune. He was 25 years old, college-bred, and had finished a post college course in an eastern law school a couple of years before. He was a homely, freckled, sandy haired young fellow with an intelligent blue eye that had frankness and comradeship in it, and a covert twinkle of a pleasant sort. But for an unfortunate remark of his, he would no doubt have entered at once upon a successful career at Dawson's Landing but he made his fatal remark the first day he spent in the village, and it gagged him. He had just made the acquaintance of a group of citizens when an invisible dog began to yelp and snarl and howl and make himself very comprehensively disagreeable, whereupon young Wilson said, Much as one.